This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier. I am once again honored to be representing my friends at New Society Publishers, the book publishers that were a big inspiration to me even before I started working with ecologies and natural buildings and way before podcasting. Their titles like The Natural Plaster Book and Timber Framing for the Rest of Us really made me believe that I could build my own home, which I eventually did. And later volumes like Ecopreneuring, Unlearn Rewild, and Building Community have offered tons of inspiration and even helped to shape my worldview. Whether you're looking for practical tips on growing and preserving food, exploring complex challenges in your own life, or sometimes just searching for hope and inspiration in a crazy world where you don't feel like you fit in, you'll find exactly what you're looking for and more at newsociety.com. Hey everybody and welcome back to another interview from the skill exchange calls that I've been running with climate farmers for our regenerative farming network here in Europe. This is one of the many community building activities that I've been organizing to help to connect farmers around Europe to some of the best emerging information available and to get their most important questions answered from our experts around the world. Now in this session, I had the chance to speak with Charles Dowding in Somerset in England. Many of you already know Charles as an innovative gardener and author of nine books on caring for soil, as well as productive ways to grow food with less weeding through no-dig management. Now at Homeacres, his small intensive market garden, Charles teaches, runs, experiments, and above all produces delicious food. Based on his experience of growing vegetables without tilling for 35 years, he shows people from all walks of life how to grow more easily, enjoyably, and in time-efficient ways. Now quickly before we get started, I want to remind all of you who would be interested in attending one of these skill exchange calls live in the future. Now all you have to do is be a registered farmer in Europe to receive invitations and call links that we have coming up. And I'm planning a next session with Nigel Palmer, the author of the book The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments later this month, so don't wait too long. You can register now at climatefarmers.org. Now with that out of the way, I'll hand things over to Charles. Charles, you have been a pioneer in no-dig market gardening for quite an experienced career. And people are generally interested on how they can get the ecology, especially in their soil, and the biodiversity that is required for a resilient growing ecosystem in line. What are some of the first things that you would tell to someone starting a garden for the first time that are worth putting their efforts into and others that though often get talked about are not as an effective use of your time? Hi, Oliver. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> quite a few not effective. Um, effective use of time is actually the main thing that I recommend anyone looks at. And I like the way you call these seminars skill exchange because skilling up is, is the best thing anyone can do to get quicker at what you, what you most need to do and make sure that everything you do is done at the right time. That's why, for example, I'm really keen on, on making sure that people sow their seeds at the best time. And um, seed catalogs and packets give, I think, really bad information on that subject. They, they're, they're not nearly specific enough. This is, I'm talking about vegetables specifically here. And as a result, people are both wasting seeds and wasting time sowing the seeds. 
for a very average result, if any at all. And that really breaks my heart because in, in this kind of work, you cannot afford to have those kinds of mistakes. You can actually afford to have very few mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes on your behalf, <laughs> not really, but you know, I'm always trying things out and, and I'm very happy to share when things don't work as well as when they do work. But uh, it's something I think that does make my teaching strong is that it, it's, it's based on really having done it. And I've noticed uh, in a lot of, um, a lot of books and, and magazines, uh, the, the people are not really basing it on that. They're, they're just repeating what's already been said. So just give you one example of that would be, you know, the, the four-year rotation, which when I started out in um, market gardening in the 1980s, I was absolutely gospel. And it was always held on to tight by organic farmers and growers because they would say, like, you know, we, we can't afford pesticides and herbicides, so we, we need to get the the soil health good and that kind of thing and then they go out and use a rotavator and there, there wasn't the same interest in um no dig no till that there is now which has happened just recently thank goodness about time and so the difference that's the difference with no dig you you you, you can break so many of the the rules but you just need to know which ones and and doing that opens up the door to being possibilities and, and being very efficient so despite that timing being so essential for getting seeds in the ground, obviously there's the seasons that you need to take a look at, but there's a lot of interest in the lunar cycles that correspond with the best germination rates for especially different, uh, yeah, especially annuals. Can you talk about how necessary and how much you consider that in your planting schedule? <laughs> oh, interesting question. Um, I would say it's the icing on the cake. If you can get the lunar cycles into your work, that is fantastic. But the much more important thing is to get all the basics right first. And that includes the soil. The soil is always the starting point. So that's where no dig and, and looking after yourself correctly comes in. Then working with the sun. And that means basically working with the seasons. You know, it's no, no good picking a date out of the lunar calendar if you're a week or two off the best season for sowing that seed. And they don't always correspond, unfortunately. So. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of the two Russian scientists called Kolisko, K-O-L-I-S-K-O, who worked in uh, the Czech Republic in the 1920s and 30s. Actually, they were invited to do the work of Steiner just before he died. And what they were looking at there was phases of the moon, interestingly, uh, which means waxing, waning, not the later emphasis that Maria Thun has brought to it with the, the four season, the four aspect approach of earth, air, fire and water. And what the Kaliskos found was that sowing two days before full moon gave you the, the biggest harvest, uh, rapid germination, and generally good, although they did say it's not always the healthiest outcome, but generally the biggest harvest. So that's quite a nice one to aim for, two days before full moon. The snag with that is it doesn't come around very often, so if you miss it, <laughs> there's another 29 days to wait. And also it does slightly contradict the, the later work done by Maria Matthias Toon on Earth, Air, Fire, Water, that's root, leaf, fruit and flower. And, and I like to work with both of those, actually. So, you know, you've got choices there. And then, uh, God, there's so many places this discussion could go, but I will just mention one, actually. And I, I'm starting to talk more about what I call energy gardening generally. There are some things that were known in the old days that have got forgotten and I think probably been a bit suppressed actually. 
because there are things you can do which cost you almost nothing, take almost no time and give great results. Who wouldn't like that? Well, people who sell a lot of products, for example. You know, it's that kind of thing that one is always up against. And actually, I'd even put biodynamic farming into that category because, you know, potentially it's a very cheap thing to do. Uh, you just need the knowledge, um, maybe not too much, actually. I mean, I, I dabble in biodynamics a little bit because I get slightly put off by the almost, you know, incredible fervor of some, some biodynamic people. I hope I'm not offending anyone by saying that, but I'm, I'm sure you might <laughs> Could know what I mean. I mean, I'm more of a pick and choose kind of person. I'll, I'll tell you what's good. And we, we use um, biodynamic preparation 500G, the whole menu, which I don't make myself, but you can buy it for eight pound, which is enough to do an acre. And then you do an hour of stirring, spread it on. And it's a very joyful process. You know, so you can think lovely thoughts while you're doing that and that spreads to your land. But one in particular I'd love to mention, which was a practice done by flower farmers on the Isles of Scilly, which is extreme southwest of the UK. It's a very mild part of the country. And they would be sending um, daffodils up to the London market. And if they could get a week earlier, they would get a much better price. This would be like very early in the season, January, February. So they discovered a combination of solar energy and dowsing um, the very simple thing they do is do it on do this on the morning of the longest day, summer solstice. And you put five sticks in the ground around your property. So you put in the stick, first stick, second stick, third stick, fourth stick, fifth stick, and you make a, any five-sided shape around so it can be totally irregular. And some people call this a pentagram, uh, but it's not. Well, it, it kind of is, but it's not. Uh, if I use that word, I, again, I get in deep water because I've had people saying, oh, you're getting into superstition now. But it, it's not like that. Um, basically, what, what it does is it warms, your, it warms your soil, your property. And just that one simple thing takes about 20 minutes. And uh, if you do it again a few times uh, a week or two after that, um, it can even increase the effect. And, and if you want to find out more, put put into um, search engine the, the name of the people who wrote this in the 1982. They're called Tabraham, T-A-B-R-A-H-A-M. So there you go. I, I've, I've hesitated to share that one in public. I've known it for a long time, done it. But I'm feeling more and more that the world is ready for these kinds of things that previously would have been condemned as superstitions. Superstition, uh, as labeled often by scientists, is it's just because the scientists can't measure it. You know, that uh, we've got to a very narrow point, I think, with, with contemporary science, where um, scientists are reluctant to take on, on new, new ideas if it's out, outside their sphere of possible, possible measuring. And, and then you've got the whole peer-reviewed thing, um, which, which makes it even more of a closed circle. So I'll leave you with that thought. No, that's brilliant, because we've been having a number of these skill exchanges for a while. And I remember one in particular that we had with Harriet Mella, who's an independent researcher in Austria and has been connecting a lot of the science from various different disciplines to what is happening in soil and what is happening with plants. And she talks a lot about the indicators that you can find for plant health without necessarily having to do any digging or lab tests or chemistry. And I'm wondering what you found in your own experience with gardening as to the indicators like Sometimes it's a feeling, sometimes it's something that you can see and point at that give you an insight into the health of the plants that you're trying to care for and what you need to perhaps intervene in order to help them along. That's kind of both difficult and easy. Uh, I think 
it comes with experience. So you, you, you've got to get that experience. You've got to really look at your plants and pay attention. And, and that behind that would always be the desire. You've got to have a desire for, for better growth in, in your plants, your fields. Uh, I remember when I started out and I, I just could not wait for my first spring. That was 1983. I was making my beds in 82. And, you know, I was excited. And, and I think that's a really good feeling because it, it get, gets your energy going. <laughs> and then what I've noticed, like particularly in my dig, no dig comparison beds, is that the plants, it helps if you have a baseline. So, you know, if you just look at a, a, a garden, uh, of plants say <clears throat> that you're not too familiar with you but you won't be able to pick out some of these characteristics because you, you haven't got any reference point but with you know doing a dig no dig trial beds has actually really helped me because what i've noticed with the where the soil has been cultivated the plants do not have the same luster to their leaves they're just a little bit less glossy they're more matte the green is a little bit more gray and metallic it's not quite so bright yellow green and glowing uh, but these are small differences because what I found is that on a on a camera with uh, the photograph, it, it's actually surprisingly difficult to pick them out. Uh, the camera, the camera can't, or, or only very slightly. And so that's showing, I think, how much we can how much we can go beyond machines. I totally echo that point that you were saying. You know, is is look at your plants. That's that's what's going to tell you more than anything. And certainly, yeah, we obviously don't want to dig them up. But I've I've always been highly skeptical of lab tests, and I'm not saying there aren't good lab tests out there, but you know you can learn so much more yeah indeed just by watching your plants and in terms of actually helping them that's maybe more difficult because you know we live in a world of, of rapid response and and also science itself is very analytical and we're encouraged to think like that you know even your question is going a bit in that direction i'd say where you're trying to pick up one or two things and often it's better to look at the whole uh, you know, think in terms more of how can I make my soil better, or, or maybe there was a sowing day I could have improved, or, or I need to water a bit more. Could be simple things like that. Uh, watering is another skill, certainly an incredible skill to to get familiar with, and it's one I talk about a lot because what I've noticed that with beginners is often they'll overwater, and plants definitely <laughs> don't look so good then. Um, they 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 need to look. Um, well, it goes in the colour of the leaf will we'll look a bit um, flabby if you've been overwatering. Um, one, one nice tip for watering actually is, is between watering, you want to see the surface of your soil or compost dry out. Uh, you know, it's actually good for the surface to be a bit dry before you water again. You, there's no way you, you should try and keep it moist all the time. So yeah, there's, there are clues. <laughs> Certainly. Now, given that you're best known for your no-dig techniques and for promoting this as a gardening method, compost and the top dressing method, which really mimics the way that nature builds soil, obviously it doesn't insert things or dig things up and put amendments down in deeper layers. It builds it from, from the top. And this was the subject that we just sort of ran out of time with on the last expert call. Can you talk about some of the, I guess, key pieces of information to know about making good compost because variations are everywhere and everybody is working with slightly different subsoil as a basis. But you were talking about how the fungal and microbial life is really what's key to making the most of the base minerals that you're working with. And so to promote those in the composting process, what are sort of the rules that you focus on? 
Yeah, I, certainly. I mean, when I started making compost in the 1980s, it was not considered a particularly important part of things. And also in those days, people were concentrating much more on the chemical composition nutrients. And I remember my brother, who was a um, non-organic farmer at the time, saying quite scornfully, you know, there's hardly any NPK in your compost. <laughs> I'll stick to using fertilizer. So in, in, when, when the climate of, of um, understanding was like that, one didn't feel great confidence in using compost or promoting it to the world. Now it's very different because we have got these microbial understandings and what we're realizing is the value of compost is much more than the nutrients it contains and it is indeed the microbes. And we're learning all the time. <laughs> so this is where anyone could join in because you know you, you can all make fascinating compost you can all have a great time doing it as well and what you will find is that you learn more every time what what I notice when I'm teaching here like you know running a course at homemakers and and we're talking about the, the garden noting then we get to the compost heat and, and the level of interest which was already pretty high it really goes up a notch you know people's eyes light up and it, it can become quite a passionate thing making good compost at the same time as you know going back to what how you phrased it in your question Oliver as you said um you know it's is kind of part of the natural process and yet in a way it's not because there's nowhere in nature you'll go out and see a compost heap certainly not one that we make <laughs> and and also on in nature and this is something i'm often asked you know debris falling on the surface all the time um decaying vegetation and it decays in situ so it's it's a different process if you like uh, very biological still uh, but not the same as you find in the compost heap so there's two aspects to that one is that why, why do we not want to just let the stuff fall on the surface? You know, why, why do we bother making a compost heap? Um, the reason is, well, partly in a damp climate, you know, I'll often come back to this one. If you leave old leaves uh, to go yellow and, and, and rot on the surface, you'll get a lot of slugs. Uh, so just in, in terms of growing plants, it, it can be quite an issue. Whereas if you take this to compost heap, obviously you're bypassing that. And then, then you're keeping your soil what some people say, um, you know, they say, well, your beds are bare, but no, they're not because they've got this much of compost, uh, which looks a bit like so. And, and that doesn't harbour pests uh, like the slugs and snails, but also I feel it's harbouring a lot of really good things that, that we don't see, so that's the small microorganisms, microorganisms. Um, and also, you know, you're just allowing the whole network of, in, if I keep with a slug example, beetles that eat slug eggs and, and that kind of thing, they're, they're all encouraged to thrive. So going back to the compost heap and how, how we can improve it and make it most valuable, um, th there are two main aspects to it. If you get it really hot, you, you will have mostly bacteria in there and, and some of them are called thermophilic bacteria. That's the ones that survive even up to 80 centigrade. And those of you who've bought what we call green waste compost that's been made from garden waste in big operations facilities where they've got a lot of machinery, they shred the wood and then they turn the compost maybe every three days and you see these paths steaming away. Um, that's not so good actually. And I know that Elaine Ingham hates that. <laughs> she, we, I was at a conference with her in Norway once. We, we happened to pass, it was you couldn't have made it up really, going from the airport to the hotel. We happened to pass a place where they were doing this and there was a big pile of black compost and she insisted to stop the car and, and hopped out and she had a look and really shaking her head. And, and two things that, that you're losing there is one is the fungal microbes. Um, I mean, she might phrase this a bit more <laughs> precisely but I'm giving you a, 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 a brief description. And, and the other thing you're, you're missing is the, um, you are losing carbon. You know, all the turning uh, exposes 
carbon. It's a bit like digging. You're losing carbon to the air. I mean, that's one of the great things about nothing. We're keeping all the carbon in the soil, uh, which is there already. So um, I'm, I recommend not turning, certainly not turning, not the Berkeley method where you turn it every five days and get compost in 28 days or whatever it might be, 14, even some people claim, like, you don't need to go there. Uh, you know, let natural processes do it. But I do find that one turn can really help and it, it both speeds it up, gives you a more even compost at the end. And we'll do our one turn after, say, six weeks. Once we've finished it, we'll let it cool down. Um, our heaps take about six weeks to make here. These are ballpark figures. I, <laughs> I don't want you to copy me. You know, don't think, oh, I've got to make even six weeks just because Charles said so or whatever. You know, just you've got to go with the flow with making compost and, and it fits into your system. So that's why that it's like there's no right or wrong. But I'm just giving you some ideas of how we do it and what fits into this garden, which is now about a third of an acre. And that's enough to make, um, oh, it's hard to be precise because we're bringing in a bit of material, but maybe six, seven tons a year. Um, you know, it depends how many edges you've got. And, and over the years, I've been anxious that we haven't been making enough. You know, I don't like importing material, although actually this raises a whole other <laughs> question. You know, should we be importing material or should we be a closed farm system? And when Rudolf Steiner first came out with that idea in his first lectures in 1924, you know, closed farm system, well, that was different in those days. And, and farms were, well, most of them had animals, for one thing. So, it, you know, it, it made more sense. Um, but all I would say here is that if, or for market garden, you know, we're selling a lot of stuff from, from this small area. And my customers do not bring their poo back to the, my compost heaps. So therefore, <laughs> how can I close my system? Um, you know, if you, if you look at it in those terms, I don't think there's any benefit in being too analytical about that. But, but certainly you, you can use most of your own waste and don't be afraid of importing waste from other people. And we do that in order to get enough green material. Green material means the fast acting, um, either fresh green leaves or material with quite high nitrogen. So that would be, say, very fresh horse manure or coffee grounds even. Coffee grounds have got quite high nitrogen. And so you mix enough of them in, we, we do in volume terms, it's probably about three quarter green, one quarter brown. Um, but the brown is, is one of the most important parts of that because that's more woody material. And uh, in the last five years, <laughs> I reckon pretty much every year I put a bit more brown in because I'm, 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 I'm seeing the value of it. And, and then you're, you're left with a compost that still has some bits of wood, not, not big ones, you just want small ones. Uh, we cut all the pieces of wood or shred them. And then when, when that compost is spread, you can still see bits of wood. And what I'm finding in the soil as a result of doing that, particularly in the last five years since, since I bought a shredder, actually, can, then we can shred green wood in, all through the late spring, summer and early autumn, particularly. The, the microbes in the soil, the fungal part of the soil seems to be increasing. And we're quite often we'll make a whole state of plant potatoes or a tomato or something, because otherwise we're not looking in the soil very much. And we'll find these white like masses, masses of, of, of mycelia, I guess. Uh, I've got a guy coming with a microscope next week and I want him to look more closely at these actually and find out what is in there. Uh, but they, again, there's so much to find out. <laughs> you just, I've just come across this and it, it seems very similar to what the, is, in Korean farming is called indigenous microorganisms. You know, they're totally from the property. It's a result of composting in a certain way, not letting the heat get too hot. Just to finish on that one, the temperature, I look to keep below 70 and usually around 60. And this is not as difficult as it might sound once you get a bit of practice. So again, it's skill. Uh, just buy yourself a cheap, quite long compost thermometer, maybe 40 centimeter. You, we, we get them for 10 pound off Amazon or electric thermometer instruments company, whatever it might be. 
and and use that. that that's your best indication of, of what's going on in your compost heap. And if you keep the range between 50 and 70, I'd say you're doing really well, but you won't do that in the winter. There's not enough brew material unless you've got horses for fresh manure. And, and don't worry about that, you know, worry less. <laughs> I noticed that people get very concerned about their compost making. And, um, you know, it's not a precise science, but you just follow these very simple guidelines and, and, and try a few things and see how it works for you. And, and if the temperature doesn't ever get hot, you can also make great compost. It'll be more fungal, it'll take a bit longer, um, but it'll be good. You just will have weed seeds, that's all. But that's not the end of the world. Yeah, there really is, there's so much variety in this and there's so many different variables with the ingredients that you put in, the time of year, the amount of moisture, the heat at that time. Uh, but like you said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You don't need to micromanage it. It does mostly take care of itself. Yeah. Now, there is this larger conversation that's going on, especially when it comes to growing vegetables, that there's an ideal level of soil health and plant health that you can get to where they are completely immune to diseases and bugs and any other kind of external damage, save for, you know, <laughs> some big massive storm. Have you seen this as a possibility or do you still focus on managing pests and diseases in a natural way and aspiring for these higher levels of health? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, yes and no. I certainly find that getting the soil right and getting the sowing dates right takes you maybe 80% of the way. But what, what I'm still doing unnaturally, you know, vegetable garden, it's hard to copy nature completely in, in, in the forest and see a bed of carrots, for example. You know, that's where we're doing something unnatural. And so you can get a pest. In this case, it would be one of the most difficult ones I find is carrot root fly. So it's little flies. I don't know if I've even ever seen a carrot root fly. They're very small apparently. <laughs> and uh, we, I use mesh covers to, to keep them out. And, and even then I'm not totally successful. They, they do help. So I am using covers quite a bit. It's rare that my garden, garden is ever totally covered. I, I'm very selective. If, you know, if you get clever with covers, you can just move them around. You don't need, need huge numbers. Just putting them on, on your plantings at the most susceptible time. And again, that comes back to the skill and knowledge of knowing that and doing it quickly and, and efficiently. So for example, all brassica plantings in the summer, um, I cover with mesh because there are so many brassica insects at that time of year. So this would be say plantings of broccoli, swedes, um, Brussels sprouts that, that are gonna crop in the autumn winter when they're going out of small plants in, in early summer and, and there's still flea beetles, there's thrips, there's butterfly starting to and moss and, and just everything that likes to eat brassica leaves. And I find just a six week period of covering those seedlings at that time, then take it off. I don't like having plants covered all the time. Uh, partly so you can't see them, you can't respond. Um, difficult to pull weeds out, not that you do a lot of that, but just generally it's nice to uncovered. So yeah, I, I think there's an element where it would be difficult to copy nature. You you know, you could then go down the road of polycropping uh, is one phrase for that where you you don't grow anything of one block altogether, but you'd have a Brussels sprout here, a Brussels sprout there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yes and no. You know, that we've all got to run an efficient operation and, and harvesting takes much longer if you've got one plant here and one plant there. In a small garden, this, this is not maybe so relevant, but, but in a, in a, in a money-making operation, hopefully, <laughs> you know, this is a really important factor. So, again, there are so many factors to consider. 
Uh, but but poly polyculture is a way to go. I'll just say on that one, actually, a really nice thing I'm finding more and more is the possibility of interplanting, coming back to the mycorrhizal network. Like um, three weeks ago, we transplanted some chervil between some lettuce and then we're picking the lettuce weekly. I'm convinced that chervil's growing faster for being between the lettuces. It's growing like a rocket, even in you know, late September, early October. And I reckon that when, when you get nice combinations of plants together, um, which are mainly specific uh, according to the season and space requirements. It's, I don't think it's so much that certain plants like or don't like other plants. It's more that they, the conditions of growing suit them both at the same time. And for example, fennel is, is an example of that. Where apparently fennel's got a really bad name, bulb fennel, Florence fennel, for, for not being friends with many plants. And, and I use it commonly actually as an interplant. We just did it with cucumbers and um, yeah, they get on fine. <laughs> we clear the cucumbers after the fennel's been planted between it for about a month. And, and before you know it, you've got a fennel harvest as well. So interplanting like that, where the, the plant roots, I'm sure, are connecting and talking in a positive way, um, you know, rather than this really old-fashioned idea of competing. Uh, although that would only happen if you, say, planted a lettuce right next to a courgette or zucchini plant, because that Courgette squash plant is going to grow so fast, it's just going to completely overpower the lettuce. It's not that they didn't like each other, it's just that, you know, it's, it's actually got it wrong in that situation. So that's where a bit of knowledge comes in. But yeah, there are, there are so many possibilities for improving health of plants. It always starts with the soil for sure. Uh, and beyond that, find out your own combinations that can work for you. And these kinds of interplanting things is possible, uh, but don't, don't have too much dispersion through your garden, maybe. Sure, the common paradox of diversity and efficiency. So yeah. many growers are, are constantly battling. Yeah. Well, so look, there's so many different ways that I could take this and I have so many more questions that I would love to ask, but I feel it only right to hand it over to the audience now. <laughs> there you have it. Now, if you would like to attend a live session of one of these calls in the future and get your own questions answered by our featured experts, and you're a farmer anywhere in Europe, you can register to become a climate farmer today at climatefarmers.org. Now remember that all of the interviews and discussions on this show are just the beginning. The ongoing conversations continue on our dedicated Discord channel, which you can always sign up for for free, regardless of where you live in the world or what line of work you're in. You can find the link on our homepage at regenerativeskills.com or through the link on our Instagram profile. Now the topic that we'll be discussing this week on the channel is, what are some of the tricks and tips that you found most useful in increasing the efficiency and enjoyability of gardening? I also wanna see pictures and stories of some of the different experiments and trials that you're running in your own gardens. So come and post your own and check out those of others. And thanks once again to Charles Dowding for sharing his valuable knowledge and experience. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. <laughs>